welcome to Verified Rx, your prescription for success. Brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. Intranasal administration of medications is on the rise for both on and off-label uses. Here today sharing details on these drugs, including their actions and indications, are Dr. Mark Donaldson, Associate Principal, and Dr. Philippe Mentler, Senior Consulting Director, both colleagues of mine at Vizient. I'm Gretchen Brummel, Pharmacy Executive Director with the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence, and your program host. Welcome back to the podcast, both of you. Hey, thanks, Gretchen. Certainly, it's been a busy year, both professionally and personally. The team's grown. We continue to get a lot of requests from our members to help them with medication utilization strategies. And then on a personal note, I became a grandfather a couple weeks ago, which really makes me feel old, but not too old to do this podcast thing. Well, congratulations, and we're really glad that you're here today. And Phil, welcome back to the podcast, and what's been happening with you? Becoming a new grandfather is a great step. I got a little bit of time before I reached that point, but I did get Taylor Swift tickets, so I think I might have you beat. Highly valuable, definitely. So let's get into it. Why is the nose a good target for medication administration, and what really is the history here? I'll start and then Phil can fill in wherever I make mistakes. There's definitely clinical situations where it's a challenge to get systemic medications into a patient, whether that's parenterally because of poor venous access or access is difficult. Oral administration is not suitable. Maybe it's due to drug issues like bioavailability or GI integrity, hepatic first pass metabolism, gastroparesis, a lot of the things that we all learned about in pharmacy school. What makes the nasal mucosa unique, not just from an anatomy and physiology perspective, is that it can help maximize patient compliance as well as the convenience and safety of medication delivery. What I mean by that is it's something that almost anybody can self-administer intranasal medications. And as far as the potential for needle sticks, if you were to giving an injectable, that also gets avoided. You did ask a little bit about the anatomy, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that unlike the skin, which is constructed from this highly keratinized stratum corneum, the nasal passages are lined with these numerous microvilli, which have risk vascularity. The difference there is that when you deliver medications intranasally, you get the advantage of providing direct entry of the drug into the systemic circulation across that epithelial cell layer, which bypasses the first pass effect and increases the bioavailability of the drug. Compared to other mucous membranes, the nasal mucosa provides a practical entrance port, not just for small, but also for large molecules. Easily accessible, offers this rapid therapeutic effect. It may be even particularly suited for children, patients with needle phobia, or unconscious patients in emergency situations. So lots of benefits. Phil, what do you have to add? One of the key components for me when I go back 20 years into the emergency department when we started using this was around IV drug users, overdoses, opiates, and whatnot. There were two things we worried about, particularly pre-hospital. One was IV access or the lack thereof just because it's difficult to stick with IV drug users, but also the risk of getting a needle stick to a healthcare worker. Using the intranasal pathway effectively eliminated those two concerns. That was a big component. When we fast forward and look at it today, it is a direct pathway to the brain, bypassing the first past effect. There's a lot of research even nowadays going on looking at direct oncologic administration through intranasal pathways, looking at drugs to directly access the brain for Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, things of that nature in the research setting. There's a number of ways. From my perspective, the key was around IV access and also safety for healthcare workers. That's a really good point about the lack of needle stick risk associated with this route. What are some of the things that you need to consider when administering medications intranasally? Not all medications are conducive to intranasal administration and absorptions. The size of the molecule, the pH, things of that nature, 
The other thing you have to consider is the potential contraindications that might arise because of intranasal route. If I have a heavy mucus, nose, bleeding, things of that nature, you'll have to be careful and consider about the techniques you're using to administer the medication. We may be familiar with nose drops, but there's also atomization device, looking at one versus the other. Generally speaking, we prefer the atomized process. You'll want to make sure that if you were to have this implemented, most hospitals do, you're going to want to make sure that you have a good protocol in place in order to make sure that everybody is aware of the standard process that we would take with this administration route. Bill brings up a good point. Those mucosal atomization devices, sometimes referred to as MAD devices, M-A-D, probably are preferable. We've had nose drops for a long time and other formulations, but delivery through a mucosal atomization device actually allows the molecule, the drug, to avoid that loss to the oropharynx where essentially most of the drug ultimately gets swallowed. You get better patient acceptability, improved safety, certainly as it relates to our healthcare providers and needle sticks, and then this idea of higher blood drug levels, especially with mucosal atomization devices. The idea of having an appropriate policy or procedure is important to make sure that there's consistency in the delivery. The last part I'll bring up, since we're talking a little bit about safety of the intranasal delivery of medications, really has to do about the fact that we don't require as much compliance from the patient. Phil brought up the idea of working in the emergency room, having an opioid overdose, unconscious John Doe brought in. And if you wanted to administer a reversal agent like naloxone, you don't necessarily have to rely on the patient to receive the intranasal naloxone. That can be provided by the healthcare provider. That's a nice safety aspect of the intranasal delivery of medications. That's really insightful. And it sounds like there's definitely a lot of advantages to this route, but not all drugs can be given this way due to some of the pharmacokinetic and pharmaceutics considerations. What are some of the labeled intranasal medications and their indications? From the time that the three of us were young baby pharmacists, we were all already aware of things like phenylephrine or aphrin-type intranasal sprays, oxymetazolone, nasal crom, or sodium chromoglycate. There's certainly plenty of them out there. Most of them were available and still are as OTC or over-the-counter non-prescription type medications, sometimes for just a simple nasal moisturizing or decongestant seasonal rhinitis. So they've been around for a long time. From those earlier experiences, we've started to recognize that this is actually a direction that is worth studying with other medications, steroids as an example. Phil brought up the idea of new therapies such as oncology medications being given intranasally. And that's on the heels of our utilization of morphine for cancer pain being given intranasally. That's something that our hospitals used to provide going back almost 25 or 30 years. That was to help manage some of the side effects associated with oncolytic processes. And now here we are actually thinking about using treatment of oncology agents intranasally. I mentioned naloxone. That's certainly a highly topical one as the Food and Drug Administration on March 29th of this year deregulated intranasal naloxone. Now you can buy that over the counter without a prescription. For our patients with migraine issues, dihydroergotamine, DHE, as well as some of the 5-H T3 antagonists, so serotonin inhibitors to treat migraines. That's been very effective. And then probably closer to where Phil and I traditionally work in the perioperative space, midazolam, which is Versed, one of the benzodiazepines, given intranasally to help sedate patients, almost used as an induction agent prior to general surgery. Lots of different drugs out there. Phil, what about off-labeled use? What are you seeing there? There's a number of areas where we use this off-label. Specifically within the emergency department is where I think emergency use, things like lidocaine for NG tube insertion, anti-migraine, opiates such as fentanyl, hydromorphone, midazolam for sedation, dexmedetomidine for sedation. And importantly to add to all of this, these are used actually in adults and peds. 
And most of this in an acute care or emergency room setting? That is my area of expertise, and that is where the majority of the drugs that I'm familiar with are absolutely used, yes, in an unlabeled setting. So what should we be thinking about in terms of safety? I think about the safety from a practical perspective. One thing to consider, very important, and why education is so important, I am using a syringe that I'm otherwise always using in an IV setting, right? I'm putting a needle on it. And indeed, I'm going to be using that syringe with a mucosal atomization device to administer intranasally. So it is very important to make sure that Everybody is aware that this is an intranasal administration drug, that the chain of command, really the individual who's going to be administering it should be the individual that's preparing it as well, and it's not being handed off from one person to another. That's very important from a safety perspective to avoid the risk of administering the wrong route, maybe administering an IV. It's important to note that the side effect profile of these drugs, whether it's intravenously, orally, or whatnot, are generally the same. The one alternative now that you have to factor in is with intranasal, you can get some local irritation, nasal irritation, things of that nature. It's important to be aware of that from a safety perspective as well. Going back to the concept of wrong route, have you seen that in your practice or have there been reports of that in the literature? I've seen wrong routes in various scenarios. I cannot say that I can recall a time where I've seen somebody inadvertently give a drug that was meant to go intranasally, intravenously, but I've seen everything else. So it is important to note because generally when giving something intranasally, the pharmacokinetics are different. It has a slower onset. The absorption isn't necessarily 100% like it would be in IV. So I'm using higher doses of these drugs, twofold, threefold higher doses than I would give IV. If I gave it intravenously, I could have a twofold, threefold overdose in a patient. And that's why I think it's important, even if it's extremely uncommon, it should be front of mind as one of the key safety components. I agree with you. The risk is definitely there, especially because as you highlighted, you're putting this into a syringe that's intended for parenteral use in other situations. I think it's definitely something that we should be watchful for. Mark, how are some of these drugs used in dental medicine? Wow, that's a curveball. Somebody may mention to you that my specialty is actually in dental pharmacology. It's an interesting space. It makes intrinsic sense, I think, to everybody. Dentists typically work in the mouth of the oropharyngeal area. They're very well-versed with the anatomy and physiology of that space. There may be times where the medication administration in that area makes more sense than IV, intramuscular, subcutaneous, or other routes. I'll layer on one other factoid. Studies have shown year over year that greater than 50, that's greater than 5-0% of the general population, has some measure of fear or anxiety about going to the dentist. And in fact, if you take a look at those studies, all very well done and reproduced, not just U.S. data, but also Canadian data. If you take a look at the subpopulation, 15% of the general population reports as being terrified or highly fearful of going to the dentist. Why are people so afraid of going to the dentist? The number one reason is usually needle phobia. They're worried about that local anesthetic injection. That was purposefully teeing me up for a new product that came out. Back in 2016, the FDA approved a drug called Covenase. That's with a K, nasal spray. And Covenase was actually a single-use sprayer, which was comprised of tetracaine hydrochloride, obviously a local anesthetic, and oxymetozolone, which we know as being an excellent topical vasoconstrictor. The idea or the strategy here in bringing Covenase to market was to actually offer 
needle-free local anesthesia. If you could deliver this local anesthetic intranasally versus injecting, that might not only increase your patient population, but may also improve the comfort and acceptance of patients in the dental office. The strategy it seems like a good one, but studies to date have really shown that covenase is not as effective in achieving pulpal anesthesia as good old 2% lidocaine with 1 in 100,000 epi, or even some of our plain local anesthetics like 3% mepivacaine. Not that we want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There still continues to be a lot of interest in ultimately getting to a point where we might have needleless local anesthesia for our high needle phobic patients in dentistry. One of the other pieces that's important to remember about dentistry is that pain secondary to dentistry tends to be due to inflammation. That's one of the reasons why, as I counsel my dental colleagues, they really shouldn't be prescribing narcotics for post-operative dental pain because narcotics are not anti-inflammatory agents. The non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, plus or minus acetaminophen, that does does tend to be the ideal recipe. On our topic today of the intranasal delivery of medications, there in fact was a brand new medication that was also developed primarily for dentistry. And that is, in fact, an intranasal non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. It's been around for a while. 1986, I think, was when the FDA approved Ketorolac or Sprix, Sprix, S-P-R-I-X, as the intranasal formulation. Similar to Covenase, great idea, but uh, uptake has been a little slow, primarily because a, a single bottle of Sprix, I think the average wholesale price is close to $500. So it, it may be always nice to have another tool in your toolkit or arrow in your quiver for that unique patient that may require something different but Sprix is probably not going to be used in all patients all the time. The last one I'll mention specific to dental medicine, there's been longstanding evidence by the American Dental Association that the minimal dental emergency kit should contain seven drugs. And that's probably reserved for another podcast. But given the fact that we continue to have this opioid epidemic, an excellent publication came out just a couple of years ago suggesting that the minimal dental emergency kit should contain an eighth drug. And that eighth drug would be naloxone which I think everybody remembers is the reversal agent for opioid overdose. Not that dentists give opioids in their office, but given the high incidence of dental fear, there's always the chance that somebody might take a narcotic, licit or illicit, just to calm their nerves before they go and see the dentist. If the dentist happened to use an interacting medication like a sedative and got that patient into a deeper level of sedation than they intended, then you would need to have the availability of the reversal agent, such as naloxone. Narcan, which we all know as an injectable medication, is now available as an intranasal version. Earlier this year, March 29th, the FDA actually deregulated it to over-the-counter status. That goes exactly in line with the direction that the American Dental Association and others are suggesting that even dental offices should now be carrying this naloxone nasal spray. And then finally, if we are still struggling with the opioid epidemic and it no longer is just one drug or a couple drugs that patients are taking, but oftentimes combinations of medications to include things like carfentanil, fentanyl, and, and some of the other illicit drugs. Oftentimes in recovering these patients, they don't need just one dose of Narcan. Oftentimes they might need more. A couple of years ago, the FDA approved a high dose naloxone nasal spray that's called Cloxado, which instead of containing four milligrams, contains eight milligrams of naloxone. That may also be of interest to my dental colleagues if they happen to practice in a large inner city practice where the opioid epidemic and drug abusers have a high incidence. Long answer, but I thought it was all valuable. Now, that's great information. And we are starting to see naloxone be available more in the public sector as well in healthcare settings. It makes a lot of sense to have it in dental medicine. And I'm really pleased to hear about the opportunities that are in dental medicine in the space of intranasal administration of medications. Thanks, Mark and Phil. And listeners, please join us for part two of this series. We'll explore more about choosing the intranasal route 
as well as practical, pediatric, and future implications. Please join us for more Verified Rx podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, and send us your comments. We'd love to hear from you. Verified Rx is your prescription for success and is brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. I'm Gretchen Brummel. Thanks for listening. 